welcome to Socrates in the City in Oxford. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, yes, yes, thank you. As you know, we're doing a whole series of these here in Oxford. Uh, Willie Sutton, the bank robber, when, they, when he was asked why does he rob banks, he said, because that's where the money is. And people ask me, why Oxford? And I said, well, that's where the speakers are. So here we are, um, doing a, a series with a number of wonderful speakers. This uh, series, Socrates in the City, is something that we do in New York City. You can go online to SocratesInTheCity.com, and you can see a raft of, of interviews with people from Malcolm Gladwell to N.T. Wright, I think. Um, so many. But SocratesInTheCity.com, and we'll keep doing more. These will air on the NRB network uh, in the States, and, and they'll be available online on our website as well. Um, so now it falls to me to introduce Peter Hitchens, which is essentially impossible. So here's my, uh, my effort at that. I'm going to read portions of the printed biography. Very complicated, Peter, and uh, you can apologize for this when you come up. Um, <laughs> British journalist, yes, uh, famous for his bold and obstinate style, written or spoken. I say that particularly because Americans tend not to know Peter Hitchens. Here in England, you're very well known. Um, but he writes on politics uh, and issues of social uh, conservatism, was born in Malta. Uh, his early education was at the Lees School. Is that pronounced correctly? Pretty so. <laughs> Followed by <laughs> Oxford College of Further Education. Then he went to University of York to study politics. Um, he was in the 70s uh, a very active member of the Trotskyist International Socialists. But weren't we all uh, in, in the 70s, weren't we? I don't remember you. Yeah, yeah. So a very checkered, extraordinarily checkered, as checkered as can be, background as far as I'm concerned. Um, but uh, at some point turned politically uh, and uh, now is thought mainly to be a conservative, a, a bold and obstinate conservative. The hated Peter Hitchens is how he's referred to typically. Uh, but you won't be here because I, I like you and your views very much. Um, he's often seen on TV here. Do you call it TV? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> he's written a number of wonderful books, uh, my favorite of which is The Rage Against God. Tremendous book, superbly written. We will uh, be talking about that, among other things, uh, because he is now going to be my guest Please, a warm Socrates in the City, Oxford welcome for Peter Hitchens. I follow you on Twitter, and I love the idea that you pick up this, uh, on, on this uh, phrase that people describe you as the hated Peter Hitchens. Oh, I made that one up. Oh, you made it up. It's a, tr it's a truthful description of it. Right, many okay. people view me, but right. I thought that I ought to copyright it myself. I hated Peter else. Hitchens. Well, uh, you're, you're not hated here yet, but we've got the 90 time, minutes. No, there's we've plenty got, of time. We've, we've got 90 minutes. It's just extraordinary to read about this. Now, there's so much to say about you and so much I want to talk to you about. But the first thing is, for American audiences, I think that the most uh, interesting thing off the bat is that you're the brother of the late Christopher Hitchens. Well, that is, for American audiences, an important thing. Yes, it is an important thing. Uh, I uh, had the honor of debating your brother briefly on CNN, and he was a real character. But it seems to me that you are similarly a character. The way you express yourself and the way you write, very entertaining. Um, if people didn't know you were brothers, they would guess it. There are some clues. There are some clues. And you, you, you sound... Uh, uh, the same, uh, or at least very similar, uh, but obviously you were very different in your views. What was it that uh, brought your brother to America? Because he was so well-known, is still very well-known uh, in America. Uh, did he just move there at some point? I don't know his biography. I think he understood that if you wanted to be at the heart of English-speaking culture, politics and debate, then the United States was the place to be. And I think he set his heart quite early on going there. He was helped. When he was here at Oxford at Balliol College, he was given something called a Coolidge Scholarship, a wonderful thing which enabled him to travel around the United States in quite comfortable circumstances for somebody of his age and circumstances for a very long time. And this was and in I think the he 70s? Came, that, that would have been at the, in the late 1960s. 
And I think at that point he probably fell in love with the idea of going to live there eventually and, and began to work out how to do it. I'm guessing to some extent, and to some extent working from what I know and to some extent from what he wrote in his memoir, Hitch 22, but I think that's more or less it. Were you close? No. I love the one-word interview answers. Well, it was a, it was Would you a, like, a question inviting. I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'm from here on in, I'll stick to true or false questions. Let me think. Uh, you, I mean, you said you know, that one so word emphatically. Answer can say an awful I just lot don't know. Three hundred words. I just answer, don't know if you're. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. Which is why I let the pause hang. Um, but uh, you, you said that rather uh, emphatically. So, would you care to elaborate on that? I mean, is there any reason, particularly, that you were not? Do you have other siblings? Do you have first any of brothers? All? Or sisters? Trying to turn the tables no, 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 on me, saying, are it we? It's, I, people, people sometimes say on Twitter, that, how, how is this guy, how can this guy be related to Krista Hitchens? And I tweet back, same parents. Anything else I can help you with? Yeah. Uh, because uh, what is this idea that people, because they are brothers or sisters, should be identical or are bound to be, uh, or, or are bound to be on good terms with each other? Brothers and sisters often fight. Lots of people write to me and say, well, I, when, they, when my brother decided to have a public row with me, uh, I, have, I haven't spoken to my sister and or brother for 20 years. And it's very common. It's not unusual. Oh, I know it's common, but I don't get to talk to those other people in this kind of a forum. No, well, I don't, I, I'm, I'm just not, wondering this, if there's more to not, it that's of interest. No, I don't think it's not very complicated. I mean, there's this tendency ever since that one of the many dreadful things that Sigmund Freud did was make us have this kind of conversation. Yeah. There are, the, 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 trying to explain everything that we do by, by, by whether we had a, a, a fight over something or other in our childhood. I, I don't remember this, but if you want the Freudian bit, my, my brother would always recall himself sitting by a flower bed uh, early in my life. I find this unbelievable. He never was very interested in flowers, but he claims to be sitting by the flower, looking at the flowers and seeing this menacing shadow uh, growing uh, next door to him, looking around and seeing me approaching him with a rake in my hands and an evil glint in my eye and, and having to run for his life. I don't know whether this is true or not. Later on, he claims to have released the brakes on my perambulator at the top of a hill. Uh, and I, I, these, these are stories he told. If you I'm want, an, if you want I'm the an, Freudian version... The, 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 I'm an anti-Freudian. There it is. I'm of the... I think Freud is all... Um, what's the polite word? Um, rubbish. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure he is. Uh, I'm of the Nabokov school, and uh, I guess uh, by protesting too much, as you just now did, you, you, you made the case for the Freudian uh, view. There's of no these escape things. from this, isn't it? No, it, no. It, 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 you, but you, I, don't, I wasn't interested the, in that. All circular theories are in escape. I wasn't, no, but I wasn't, inter- <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't interested in that. I was, simply was wondering uh, if there was any particular reason. You're quite right that many uh, siblings don't get on. Uh, but I was just wondering if there was if there was some break or. From or... my point of view, I, I was always baffled by it. It, it's, it, it was like Arthur Kerstler told this story about the man in in Vitebsk, uh, well, actually in the countryside outside Vitebsk, who invented this tremendous device for getting around, and was enormously proud of it. It had two wheels, it had a chain and handlebars, and he pedaled it into Vitebsk. Into where? Into where? Vitebsk. It's a town in what is now Belarus. Uh, and he pedaled it into Vitebsk and found that everybody else was riding these things called bicycles. His, his own individual invention turned out to be common knowledge. I was amazed when I found out later in life uh, that other people actually had uh, bad relationships with their siblings. It's, I thought it was an individual problem that I had suffered. I had no idea what the explanation for it was. I thought it was incredibly rare. And then I discovered, to, to my relief, that almost everybody had the same thing. So it's, it's more than just that you weren't close. You were decidedly not close. My father tried to make us sign a peace treaty, <laughs> which I repudiated about well. six hours after signing it. Pulled off the wall and, and scratched Wow, he signature. made you sign a peace treaty. Mm. That sounds... Uh, Poor man. Yeah. Middle East peace would have been easy. That's dramatic. Christ. Well, let, let me ask you... Uh, uh, did you both? Are there other siblings? I don't remember. No, that's it. Okay, so but you you do both have tremendous uh, skills with the English language. You both have a very compelling, very compelling writing style, which is extremely rare. Are you aware of that? Well, it's awfully nice of you to say so. But I, I, as, as I, uh, I think said to you earlier on, uh, I regard such things as a gift. And when I say that, I don't 
make any claims for myself. I just think that they are, it is something which you have and which it's not your responsibility and for which I, can, I can't accept any praise. One thing I do know, and, and this I will say to anybody who sets out to write, whenever I've tried to please uh, an imagined audience, I've failed. Interesting. Well, n not everyone has the gift of such a strong point of view uh, and such a strong personality, but both you and your brother seem to have that from what I've read of yours and of his. And it, 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 it is a very rare thing, and it's something that the reader or the viewer uh, enjoys. Uh, you you uh, both, I must say, have that rare gift of, of being compelling no matter what you're saying, and one is often... Uh, well, that's because you don't know me well enough. I can be boring, I absolutely yeah, promise yeah. you. No, I, I, but I mean, people have said this about, I'm trying to think now, they said it of Whitfield, they said it of Wilberforce, and I don't mean to compare you to either of them, but, but just that someone's voice or way of speaking is so compelling that you'd be happy to hear them read anything. I think it was David Garrett, the actor, who said something like, I wish I would give anything to be able to say, oh, the way Mr. Whitfield does. Or another time he said something about the way, just to, he can bring people to tears don't, by pronouncing the word Mesopotamia. Don't get carried away. Yes, I know I was going to say, you certainly don't rise to that level, but it's the same. The last we got off that one. It's, it's the same idea. But, but it, it's an interesting thing because I'm a writer and a, and a speaker, and it is an interesting thing to me that um, some people are born with an innate ability to seem compelling. And it's just interesting since the two of you are brothers that you, you both have that. You, you, you have an energy... Uh, somehow that, that makes what you're saying compelling. You, the, I'm very happy to say it translates on the written page. I mean, even today, I can't remember when I, when I read this book. It's, it's years ago when it came out. When did it come out? Uh, I think it would have been about five or six years ago. 2010, which is when I would have had you at Socrates and City. I didn't say it earlier, but um, when this book came out, I read it. I was so uh, thrilled and impressed by it that I invited you to come to Socrates in the City in Manhattan in 2010, and you came there, and you gave the shortest Socrates in the City speech in the history of Socrates in the City, which I attribute to your painful British diffidence. They say, oh, nobody wants to hear from me for any more than 15 minutes, blah, 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 which is nonsense. People would listen to you for two hours, but you spoke for 15 minutes, and then we did Q&A, which was perfectly wonderful. But the, the book... Uh, was, was so compelling, and then today I thought, let me go back and see what I thought was so compelling about it. And I just read the first sentence of the introduction, and it, your, 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 your personality is, and voice is so strong in it. And I was wondering if you would read the first paragraph of, of this for us, so just to sort of set things up. How could you refuse? I can't, really. Uh, this is the, the introduction here, uh, rather than, okay. Only one thing comforts me when I look back at the carnival of adolescent petulance, ingratitude, cruelty, and insensitivity that was my godless period. I was at least not doing it to fit in with the spirit of the age. I held all my radical positions when they were not yet fashionable, and it was necessary to be quite determined, or perhaps just arrogant, to hold them. I got myself disliked and disapproved of, by the very kinds of people who nowadays would be orthodox supporters of diversity and secularism, precisely because they are orthodox. Thank you. Um, well, I just, as I, I read it, I mean, I, you know, I hear your voice, because I wouldn't use the word petulance, ingratitude, cruelty, and insensitivity. It's just beautiful. Um, so tell us your story, because this book really is, uh, in large part, this, the story of your life, how you came to be well, no, who you are. Well, no, it's not. It's not. Oh, yes, I, it is. I avoid that very much. Okay. And I don't, how isn't it? Well, I mean, it, it's, it refers to various things, but quite briefly and, uh, and usually without too much detail. Well, I didn't mean to say that it was a memoir, more. but it does, no. to someone unfamiliar with you, this book uh, made me feel that I, that I, I understood you because of the way, uh, because of the things that you talk about. But... Um, in, in the introduction, at least, now you're referring to your, um, your youth. And, and so what was it? What were you like? What led you to be uh, so outrageously liberal that you were a Trotskyist? This is one I, I, there's a simple general explanation for this. I was brought up f for a world that no longer existed. 
Uh, I was raised in a home and educated in schools which continue to assume the existence, uh, because my father was a naval officer, and anyone who's in the armed services will know that the armed services are always uh, more conservative than the societies that they're in. Uh, because of that, I was still raised in the belief that this was uh, a major international power, that it was a Christian-ordered country, uh, that it still had most of the characteristics that it had had 50 years before. And in a very rapid space of time, which I can recall beginning to sense, uh, even, even very, very slightly, because I can just remember the Suez crisis, but it, with increasing intensity from then on, I felt a collapse of authority within it. And the things that I... 67. Thought, 50, no, 56 was Suez. Uh, when I when I was uh, I was five and I was just just coming my sixth birthday I can remember my father a naval officer for goodness sake in gold braid having to ride to work on an old bicycle because there was no petrol gasoline as you call it because of the Suez crisis and that was something that naval officers didn't do I can remember that and I can remember a general feeling of something close to panic and then shortly after that of course the, the navy in which he served for thirty years was pretty much shut down, and, and huge numbers of people like him were beached, and it was the end of, it was the end of that. So, so that came to an end, and then it became increasingly clear uh, that authority in general had lost its nerve. And so the things that I've Authority been... Authority had lost that I, its yeah, nerve. Was, it lost its nerve, really. Suez was the moment where it really lost its nerve. It was, a, it was an enormous crisis for this country. The United States hasn't yet had its Suez. The, the Iraq war may have been your series. You haven't realized it yet. But so, you, since, you, it, since, since so many of us are Americans uh, who will be listening, most people okay. be Americans, d d do us the, the, the favor of explaining uh, the Suez crisis and right. how well, it, it was. It was this, this is 1956. Britain still filled with the, 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 the feeling of having been one of the great victors of the Second World War, of being a world power, of being an empire. Uh, the Prime Minister, Anthony Eden, believes that he needs to show that he's as great a man as Winston Churchill, whom he has succeeded. It scans the world, as modern politicians have done ever since, looking for a Hitler whom he can take on. Finds as a substitute for Hitler, Gamal Abdel Nasser, the president of Egypt, over a pretext, uh, a rather inadequate one, invades Egypt, uh, pretending not to be doing so at the time. There's a, there's a dirty deal done with Israel and France to pretend to be doing something else. Uh, and then finds that the action is disapproved of by the United States and that, and that if he doesn't call it off, the country will go bankrupt. And so... This country. Uh, this country. There's another aspect of this, which is not to... I, I, I made a radio program last year in which I have found recordings uh, of Admiral Ali Burke, one of the U.S. Navy's greatest fighting sailors, uh, describing how he had explained to John Foster Dulles, then the U.S. Secretary of State, how he could have, if the United States had wished, opened fire on the British Navy in the Mediterranean to stop it proceeding. Uh, this because, because Dulles was saying to him, how do we stop them? And Burke said, well, the only way to stop them is to blast them out of the water, and we could do this if you want to. And the Sixth Fleet actually shadowed the Royal Navy and the French Navy through the Mediterranean, very, very close, cutting across their bows, generally harassing them. It was an amazing moment of understanding among those in Britain who understood world politics that it was over. We were no longer a world power. We could no longer act independently. We were too bankrupt to do so. And that the people who we thought of as our shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder allies from the Second World War were, in fact, those who were most anxious to stop us being a world power. It was a huge moment of revelation. I mean, I, I understand uh, what it would mean, but I still i am not quite sure that I understand. Yeah, I mean, you yourself said that Eden was looking for, for trouble, so to speak. He, well, he, was, he was trying to prove himself. Right, but that's, not a, that's was, not a good reason to go to war, obviously. Oh, it is a very big reason for politicians to go to war. They do it all the time. Well, not everyone's as cynical as Peter Hitchens. Um, it's not, it is not I who is being cynical. It is people who do these things. Those who observe them and do not see what's going on uh, out of sentimental reasons are foolish. I am simply telling the truth. This is how history happens. Vanity is a very, very strong, is a very strong uh, feature in the, I mean, make, but there making, were no, the making of major but, diplomatic But mistakes. what would Eden have said was the case to go against uh, Nasser? Well, he, was, he, he, he had convinced himself that, that Nasser was such a threat that, 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 that Nasser, he, he compared Nasser directly to Hitler. 
Wow. I mean, I, I was always on the oh, I mean, this is that Nasser was George, the best George thing that happened George to w. the Middle Bush, East. George W. Bush compared Saddam Hussein to Hitler. Comparisons obviously ludicrous. I, but these, com these comparisons are made by modern politicians all the time. Yeah. I think there's even, there's the, currently, there are, uh, Hillary Clinton uh, recently compared Vladimir Putin to Hitler. Another nonsensical, uh, moronic statement, uh, not worthy of anyone who knows any history or any politics. But it's the kind of thing they say. And it leads, I'm afraid, frequently to unnecessary yeah. disputed wars. Well, in any case, that's a, a, that's a side issue, and forgive well, me for dragging uh, you into it, but for Americans... No, that, that's... I, I brought it up, and, yeah. and you're right. But uh, just because for Americans, and I'm an American, we're, we're uh, not as familiar with the Suez Crisis, and so it's interesting it to, to, it was to hear very, your... You played a very big part in it. Well, th this is... Well, <laughs> yeah, but... Uh, Fantastic anybody... book. There's a wonderful book by Keith Kyle, in which the whole thing is described. It's one of the best modern history books ever written. By Keith Kyle. Keith Kyle, K-Y-L-E. It is still in print, and it is, is a superb account of it. Uh -huh. Anybody who's interested in modern post-war history should read it. It is tremendous. But you're, you're saying that the, uh, the average Briton felt uh, that things had changed, that that's now... The, uh, to, to have to ask the U.S.'s permission uh, to do something, it was humiliating. It was. It was a huge national... Well, we had to scurry home with our tail between our legs. We were defeated. We had to abandon the operation. The whole thing was a failure. And worse than a failure. And we, were, we, we, we were both pretty obviously bankrupt and also publicly humiliated and defeated on the world stage. After that, there wasn't really any future for us as, 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 a, as a major power. And the, the effect of this was not just material, of course. Throughout the Middle East, where we had previously been quite an influential country, our influence collapsed. Mm. And it was after that that the, the, we'd begun to wind up the British Empire in, in 47 with the Indian independence. It was after that that the rest of the empire was got rid of at amazing speed, the kind of fire sale. We just got rid of everything. Um. So, so you perceived this as a child already? You could, you could feel the mood in it. And the, the thing is that all the figures of authority, the, the, the local vicar, the, the, um, the school teacher, the policeman, the, the magistrate, everybody else, all of them after that moved with less confidence and less assurance. Nothing looked or felt quite the same. The kind, they'd, lost, they'd lost a sort of... Uh, they'd lost some of their magic. And, and I felt this, and at school, you, 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 increasingly I realized, you, you know, Lenin's great, uh, great statement that uh, when, you are, uh, when you are confronted with an apparent enemy and you press your bayonet forward, if you meet mush, press on. If you meet steel, retreat and attack again later. I found that, and if you're a, 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 a kind of nuisance and arrogant and difficult schoolboy and you press against authority, I found it gave. Increasingly it gave. And then there was a second episode after, uh, after the Suez episode, which was the Profumo affair. Now, I didn't know uh, during the Profumo affair what a cool girl was. Uh, and the idea of being... Uh, in a West End nightclub, gave me a headache just thinking about it. But there I was, a schoolboy aged, what, 12, reading about these things, and it was quite plain that the people who, who claimed to govern us uh, were in their private lives scandalous, disreputable, and dishonest. And again, that coming so soon after Suez, the effect of that on one's perception of authority and the, all the ideas that I've been brought up to believe in, the romantic idea of the, of the, the great wonderful British Empire, Christian, a force for good, uh, began to dissolve in my mind. And yet, I still had these desires, uh, desires to believe in these things, but they were no longer credible. So I think I looked for something So you leapt over to the utopianist, Trotskyist side So I think, yes, so I think the, the, um, the, but the thing is that it seemed more grown up. The thing about Bolshevism is that it is, it, it, it is, it is a creed for the, the, the disillusioned and it's, the creed, it's a creed for people who believe themselves to be undeceived. It's the, it, is, it, is, it is the embodiment of cynicism. You accused me of cynicism just now, which I, I, an accusation I utterly reject. When I was a Bolshevik, I was a cynic, because that's what Bolshevism is about. Yeah. It's about nothing but power. If love is the opposite of power, which it is, then the Bolshevik believes wholly in power. Yeah. And the Christian believes wholly in love, and that is the difference. I remember that when you spoke at Socrates in the City uh, a few years ago, you said some things which I have never forgotten. I learned something significant from you that evening. 
um, because you brought this European perspective that I'd never heard before. But you were talking about how it was the first war that led uh, to this breakdown of authority, that, that, uh, that Great Britain uh, and much of Europe was never the same after that war. That, of course, didn't happen in the United States. Yeah. Um, but unpack that, if you would, because that, that, that's something well, course, that we I, don't this, hear very much. Again, this is, to some extent, what I've just described is the last act of a, of a drama that yeah. lasted for 50 years. Yeah. But the, you have to remember that the First World War was, at the time it was... Uh, at, at the time it began, was promoted as a great war for civilization against the Hunnish barbarism. The Germans were supposed to be advancing with dead babies on their bayonets, which they tossed into the air and a trail of raped nuns behind them. Uh, there, was, uh, there was no question that every civilized man had to, had to go and sign up and fight against this evil. At the end of it, uh, nothing of the kind turned out to have been true. And at the end of it, he, first of all, you, take a stroll around the city when you finish this conversation. Go particularly to, just across the road to Christchurch. Look at the war memorial outside the chapel for 1914 to 18 and see the huge list of what was the flower of England who volunteered for war on the day it began in 1914, and most of them were dead within 18 months. And this was not just true of the Flower of England and Christchurches. If you go down to all the, 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 the small churches and, and chapels, you go around the suburbs, mm. the place where the industrial workers lived, you go out into the villages, you'll find in every case all the best people in all those places volunteered for what they believed was a war for civilization, went out and died. And they mostly died without fathering children. Uh, where they had father children, they left them fatherless and they left their families devastated. Their whole influence over our society ended. So we lost something, huge numbers of poets, architects, scientists, politicians, priests, ev all the best people we could have had lost in one year. Now, it, the, it's not comparable to the catastrophe which overtook, for instance, Russia, with first of all revolution, then civil war, then war, and all those following it. A catastrophic, uh, a catastrophic actual um, war against Germany as well from 1914 to 1917. It's not as bad as that, but it did have an effect. And the other thing is this. Uh, these people were told that they were, they were fighting for a good cause. The churches particularly joined in every aspect of authority. The country squire, the village parson, all the newspapers, the, the heads of the universities, all urged the same thing. This war was one which must fight. Those men who went out and fought it and survived and came back what they had seen was they'd seen, these, these were very gently brought up people, very Christianly brought up people, uh, who believed in the commandments and, uh, and who un, un, understood them to be absolute and it, it had gone out and slaughtered their fellow men and, and disobeyed them, one, one of the most powerful commandments of all. They'd lived among the corpses of their friends and comrades, watched them being eaten by rats, lived among this filth and corruption for month after month and year after year, and then they had to return home and try and resume normal lives and listen to the same parsons who told them to go out and, and, and fight this war, telling them that it had been good. They knew it wasn't. They knew it hadn't been. Imagine the corrupting, destroying, demoralizing effect of that on a whole society. Hundreds of thousands of people and the devastated, broken, irreparable families and the women who could never marry because there weren't enough men to marry them. It was catastrophic. Well, let's go back to what, what started us on all of this as you were describing um, the Suez Crisis and then the Profumo Affair and how it led to uh, a change in um, people's feelings about the authorities here in Great Britain and the sense of strength and so on and so forth. So you, um, at that time, turned to communism. Yes, and how long did that last? And well, no, what... communism is wrong because it, you, you, the, the, the Trotskyist part of it is important because any fool could see that communism in the Soviet form had failed on its own terms. And the, the point about Trotskyism, its attraction towards the, the left-wing revolutionary, is quite simply this, and the reason why it's fundamentally bogus is also quite simply this, that by embracing Trotskyism, you said, we believe that's the the Russian Revolution could have turned out differently if it had had different leadership. And we pretended that to ourselves. So it, there is, I, I don't know if this is, this is an excuse. I just want to point out I wasn't that stupid uh, that I would actually have joined a communist party loyal to and in communion with right. the Soviet Union. 
Okay, so you were a Trotskyite. Trotskyist. Trotskyite is a term. What's the difference between Trotskyite is a term of abuse. Trotskyist is a technical description. (laughs) I mean, if words matter to you, at this point, I think you could use either. Well, you can do what you like. No, you can use either. The thing about Trotskyite is it was a term of abuse used by Stalin, and particularly during his show trials, when uh, people who were innocent of of the alleged crimes of which they were being accused, though they might have been guilty of something else, uh, were judicially murdered. Okay, so where does the title of this book come from, The Rage Against God? Well, I think it's what I, whenever I attempt to argue with, with the modern militant atheist, rage is what I encounter. The modern militant atheist, yes, as we that's just what, said. That's what they, they're, in very, they're in very full of a, of a, of a passionate... Did you, did you have some of that rage when you were a Trotskyist? Yes. You did? Oh, yeah. So what happened? Well, I stopped being one. <laughs> And then Bob's your uncle. Thank you very much. It's okay. Uh, you can always ask supplementary questions. Feel free. I feel very, I feel lot, very rather free. Rather a lot of talking there. I feel forced to, uh, to feel free because change... You have my permission. Okay, right. good. Um, the, uh, the idea that you changed, um, was it over a long period of time? Yeah, or of was course it is. I mean, to change, people are terrified of changing their minds. Changing your mind is a door you don't want to open because you're afraid of what's behind it. Changing your mind means losing all your friends. Changing your mind means a complete revolution in your life. Changing your mind means publicly admitting you've been wrong. Changing your mind is something... I originally, uh, long ago, planned to write a book called How to Change Your Mind. Now, none of my books has been particularly successful, but I decided this was a futile thing to write because I, I was sure that nobody would actually buy it. People don't want to change their minds. And the interesting question is not that I did as I did, which is all down the centuries until the 20th century was what people did. It was, I was a youthful revolutionary atheist and all the rest of it. Because you, look, you just look at them. The, play, the, the whole of the history of mankind is full of youthful revolutionaries who in later life grew up and became conservative Christians. And there, there's a, a long line of them. I don't claim to be, to, to be as distinguished as them. I'm just saying it's a cliche of a thing to do. The interesting thing is not that I did this boring, obvious thing. The interesting thing is why most of my generation didn't. That's, that's the question. That, that that's is my the point. Question. Why is it that people in their 60s haul jeans onto their sagging frames and go to Rolling Stones concerts and still believe in the left-wing things they believed in when they were 50? That's the question. That, and they have never grown up. That's why my question. Why do people not grow up anymore? I'm asking you that question. I have no idea. You have to ask them. I'm, I am the last person to ask. Can somebody help me? Um, well, it's, it's worth exploring, but in your case... Growing up is, is a cliché, isn't it? No, you, you, you do all the things that people do when, when, yeah. when, when you grow up. You become responsible for paying your own rent and buying your own food, and uh, then other responsibilities pile up, and you discover that the world is not as simple as you thought it was. Uh, the, old, no, the, old, the, the old fridge magnet saying... Uh, the what? The old fridge magnet saying, teenagers, you know, go out into the world now while you still know everything. Uh, leave home now while you still know everything and take advantage of it. And the moment will come when you <laughs> Well, I've got some theories on that, but let's stick to you. I well, used to know everything, now I don't. Right. Why did you change? Where, when did this, when well, did this I would say it's a cliche. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a cliche at in, what age in, in normal terms. Did well, you I, begin I, to change? I, at the age when everybody else does, starting in my 20s and ending up. Except in no one else 30s. does. Every, everyone else used to. Is it because I'm brighter than other people? Is it because I've... I think that's part of it. I don't know. I I can't... can't. There are one or two small experiences in my life that I've had which other people haven't had. You seem to be somewhat of a contrarian. No, no, that's a silly word. It doesn't... See? It just... just, No, it doesn't... It it just means someone who takes up a position for the sake of it. No, no, but it's a kind of... Actually, that's not right. No, 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 no. That's not quite right. What I mean by that is that you have a very... uh, you have a kind of an instinct to find, uh, maybe to prove others wrong. It's a good, I think it's a good thing uh, that, that you're sort of looking for the holes, that there's something ab- about that. I have or an maybe instinct you... to think. What? I have an instinct to think, that's all. And I think, and it's not, I was, uh, luckily for me, I was taught by, b- both by people and by, and by circumstances to think. Most people are not taught how to think, they're taught what to think. And, and this is the huge difference between education now and education then. 
I don't know why. I, I, can't, I can't claim... I, I could say that I, I'm brighter than everybody else, but that, that would be ludicrous claim to make. I, it's just, I think, uh, and a lot of other people don't. I notice it. Thinking will almost inevitably cause you to change your mind. Right. So that, again, thinking is repulsive to quite a lot of people. They don't want to do it. Sometimes in these Twitter exchanges I have with people, I give them the chance to think. I never, I never assume stupidity or hostility or unresponsiveness or an inability to argue in anybody who takes me on. I always give them the chance to have a, to have a reasoned exchange. And often, by the, t by the third exchange, I've realized there is absolutely no ability to respond in there at all. That however generous I'm, I might be, they're not going to reply. They're simply going to say the same thing over and over again, only more rudely. And at that point, I block them, because it's a waste of time. And I haven't, there's no pleasure to be had. You block argue, them? Yeah, because argue, you talk, are we arguing, talking about Twitter? Arguing with, arguing with people who don't know how to argue is like playing chess with a squirrel. <laughs> you, you, there's just no point in it. You, are you talking about Twitter? Yes. I, can't, I, haven't, I, haven't, right. I haven't time to waste on, on people who can't argue. But I'm fascinated that point. you even take people on so, so No one would waste time on playing tennis with me for the same reason. It's just, it's just a waste of their time. Yeah. yeah. But I'm just I fascinated... Play, I can't play tennis, but, but I can argue. But I'm fascinated that you're drawn into that on Twitter. I resist it on Twitter because I'm, I guess I have an instinct that that's exactly where it's going to go. Twitter is not the place to have a conversation. No, I have had... I had Let I, me break it to you. I have, Twitter is not the place. I have had successful arguments resulting from encounters on Twitter. You have? I have. Well. I, have persu I have persuaded a man that there is no such thing as addiction, which there isn't. And I've uh, had a, recently had a very successful argument about academically selective education. Academic what? Academically selective education, which is a big political issue in Britain with, with, some, with, with somebody on Twitter. It can happen. But I'm ruthless about blocking people who, 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 who can't or won't argue. Right. I'm so thrilled you haven't yet blocked me. Um, well, I... Uh, Take it as the compliment that it has. Early, well, I've never, I've never engaged you on Twitter, but... Um, we're here now. Yeah, we're here, we're here now. I do want to get back to your, your book. It's fascinating to talk to you about anything, frankly, but uh, what, what, what is this book about? I mean, you... you um, it, it, it is, as I said, so so compelling, but you're talking about a phenomenon, the rage against God. It is right because it is a rage. Does that mean, in part, that it is uh, not logical? I mean, it seems to imply that it's not logical. No, it's logical, um, but it, it is, it's fundamentally also, it's Bolshevik. And the, one of the things that I point that I'm making, it's not, by the way, a book of Christian apologetics. Anybody who... who buys it seeking that would be deeply disappointed, as quite a lot of people have been, as, as, uh, and write in to Amazon to say, well, this doesn't tell me much about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, no, it doesn't. Uh, it is an attack. It's an anti-atheist book. Mm. Uh, that's what it is. It's, and it explains the, the root springs of atheism. And one of the things it doesn't do, and I wish, it, I wish I had done this because I only realized it after I read Richard Pipes' History of the Russian Revolution, is make the point about uh, Helvetius that once you've, once you've decided that man is a malleable creature rather than uh, has been created uniquely by God, then you can seek to change him. Uh, this belief that man is not created by God is a license for a type of politics and a type of action which would otherwise be impossible. Uh, because it, it, it says you, utopia is possible, man can be changed to suit the kind of society that I want. And this is fundamental, and this is why atheism and Marxist utopianism march hand in hand, because they need each other. But most of the arguments which were advanced by the defenders of the Soviet Union in its worst phase are remarkably similar to the arguments advanced by the new atheists. And there's a particular passage in there in which Richard Dawkins uh, commends a, an essay by a man called Humphrey who actually calls for the censorship of Christian education of children by their parents. The censorship of what? Of Christian education of their children by their parents. He actually... He actually Right. Specifically, explicitly says yeah. that although I'm in favor of free speech, I'm as people always say when they're about to attack it, I'm yeah. really in favor of free speech. Yeah. But in this instance, yeah. I think people should be stopped from saying this. The illiberality of it and the intolerance of it is immense. Also, the other thing uh, that I quote is, is Thomas Nagel, one of the 
distinguished, intelligent atheist who doesn't suffer from this rage and who is not intolerant of, of Christian believers, who asks this fascinating question, which I think is the one which ought to be asked in all debates between Christians and non-believers. Why is it, he asked, that I so much want there not to be a God? Now, I know exactly why I wanted there not to be a God, because I didn't want there to be justice in the universe. I didn't want the actions that I committed and intended to continue doing uh, to be punished, uh, that I wanted everything to be ad hoc. Uh, it would have suited me just fine, the kind of life I was leading at this time. And I, I was perfectly frank about it. And also, I quote from the opening, well, not quite near the beginning of that rather fine novel by... Uh, the prince of second-rate novelists, Sunset Moore, uh, of human bondage. Where Philip Carey, uh, his hero, who's actually, it's an autobiographical novel, suddenly realizes that he no longer believes in God, and this is a huge liberation for him in the life that he intends to lead. Now, if atheists would simply say, of course I don't, I, I, belief is a choice, I choose not to believe in God because I don't want that kind of universe, I don't want to fear those consequences or those, the, the, those, those penalties, I don't want to believe that what I do matters somewhere else, then that would be the end of the argument, wouldn't it? We'd say, okay, that's what you want to believe, that's the kind of universe you want to have, okay? But what they insist on saying is that there is no choice, that, the, the, that their belief is, doesn't even need to be proved. They say, I have no belief. Uh, you're the ones with the burden yeah. of proof. And, you know, and, I, and I say it's not true. Of course you have a belief. A, 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 a toad or a weasel uh, or a lump of soap may not have any belief, but you have a belief. Anybody with a mind has a belief. But they, it is the one thing, if you enter into arguments with atheists, it is, it, it is one thing which will, which will invariably force them to turn away, make excuses, and become enraged with you. Say, why is it that you don't want to believe in God? What are your motives for this belief? And they say, well, what are your motives? And I say, well, of course I have motives for belief in God. I'm quite clear about it. I believe in God because I choose to do so. I prefer to live in that kind of universe. What are yours? I, I just have to say, for the last 40 seconds, all I can think of is that I want to write a poem with the title, A Toad, A Weasel, A Lump of Soap. <laughs> really delightful choice of specifics. <laughs> um, I am convinced more and more, I wrote a book this last year called Miracles, I stole Lewis's title, but I'm more and more convinced that the evidence for God is almost overwhelming, that if you care to think, as you put it earlier, it's much more difficult not to believe in God. I think that your, your late brother and the other new atheists do almost nothing but take cheap shots, and I'm staggered at their intellectual sloppiness and in some cases dishonesty when you look at it coldly you can say well here I don't know this I don't know this I don't know this but to say I know that God doesn't exist it seems to me that the evidence in in a host of ways different kinds of evidence is extremely strong and that case is never made and it's it's a bit like let me let me let me finish because I want to say what you said about the mush earlier in other words that when you sense mush keep pushing, right? I feel that uh, the, 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 uh, these, uh, these authorities, just as you said, that, that something happened and people who believed or whatever began more and more to sort of back up and apologize and apologize and say, oh, I don't... And, and it encouraged uh, atheists uh, really to, to push and push and push so that everyone seems to think, well, who's to say, well, this is what I believe, it's a private belief. But it seems that the facts... There's no steel there anymore. In other words, that, that, that these facts are not typically marshaled. And it really is such... It, it's so powerful that I'm, I'm amazed. When I wrote this book, I was myself amazed. I said, this is really close to being open and shut. If you have to pick, the evidence here is much stronger. Yes, but, but you, you never have, hear you, but, that. But, no, arguments with which you can convince yourself are of one quality. Arguments with which you can convince other people are of another. But it's not, it's not it's about you can't, convincing they, you, They're people. not going to say so. The Half the point about this argument is what is admissible as evidence. Now, people say to me sometimes, have you had any religious experiences? I say, good heavens, no. Um, I'm British. But I, <laughs> on, on, on the other hand, I will say that the whole of life is a religious experience, which I w would say that it was. The entire universe is, to me, well, the is, different kinds is, is, of is, religious is a huge preponderance of evidence in favor of yeah. the, the existence of yeah. God. But this is not regarded as admissible 
by the atheists. They simply discard Who it. Who cares? Because, no, that, well, they care. Who they cares? Have, they Who have cares made whether it they be, care? Because, because they don't believe. And the reason why they don't believe is because they don't want to believe. And the reason for the success of the four horsemen of the new atheist apocalypse is quite simple, that you've had in the United States, for the first time, really, a huge number of, of, uh, of teenagers going off to college who've been brought up in Christian homes, uh, who've been attending church, uh, whose hometowns have been, by and large, dominated by the Christian ethos, uh, who have arrived at college and begun to le live the lives of hedonism which are laid in front of them and made incredibly easy now for, for the young, uh, and who are enjoying them and who realize that this conflicts completely with everything they've been brought up to believe. And it's really a, a tremendous joy to them to find articulate, educated people who are prepared to stand up and say that what they're doing is right. Right. Uh, who, and, and to, uh, who, who laugh at their pastors and who laugh at their parents and who laugh at all the influences. That but most of that is posturing. That's what I'm saying. It may well be, but it's posturing which is acceptable because it is what they desire. They see the lives of hedonism which are available and they wish to lead them. Yeah. It's not unusual. Uh, the Bible's full of this happening. The children of Israel repeatedly run off and do it uh, and, and go off and worship false gods and have to be carted off into exile to teach them a lesson. It's not a new thing. And the thing is, it's new in the United States. But I would say, for, first of all, you know, you can't really know whether someone will buy an argument or somebody will accept the evidence. T to my mind, that's, that's secondary. If you've never even presented it, that's another story. And it strikes me that a lot of these teenagers going off, they've never really heard. I mean, it was Chesterton, right, who said it's not that uh, Christianity... Uh, has been tried and found wanting. It's never been tried at all. You know, you, you don't really have people who know... Found to be difficult and not tried. What, there you go, thank you. Uh, you. You don't really know... I think most people don't really know what they believe. They've, they've never heard uh, these arguments. They've never heard the evidence. And so they're sitting ducks. If they'd at least heard that, there are some of them uh, who, to whom it would appeal. But what I'm saying is that I think... Christians have kind of adopted this um, passive, defensive stance, which is wrong when you see how much evidence there is. I mean, it's to me that... I, 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 I just don't think that they, in their current lives and state of mind, would be receptive to any amount of evidence. They've, they've deliberately decided to reject it, and, that's, uh, and, and, and if you have decided that evidence is inadmissible, then you won't hear it. Uh, and that is uh, that I'm afraid is, is what we have to face. And the point I might make to you is that maybe the United States has had its Suez, and maybe this is one of the effects of a, a general demoralization, which has followed particularly, I think, the, uh, the, the, the evident failure of the Iraq war, which was regressively, to me, supported by a large number, particularly of evangelical Christians who... Uh, who, who I would go who way back before that. Our Suez, to me, was Vietnam and Watergate. Maybe. I mean, that, that, there's no question that that's the sea change That's your Pufuma affair. I don't know. It's, it's, well, I thought Pufuma affair whatever, followed Suez. Whatever, yeah, they don't have to... Things, parallels are never exact. Things don't necessarily have to... Well, I'm saying what was the... Precisely the same pattern. Right, but, but the, the Vietnam and Watergate really changed America dramatically, and we never recovered. The fundamental, the fundamental revolution, actually largely undocumented in both our societies, was the destruction of lifelong marriage in the 1960s by divorce laws, which created this extraordinary position. And when you, when you hear it described like this, you'll understand what happened. Uh, until the divorce laws in the 1960s, a marriage was a, an agreement entered into by two people freely for a, a, of a lifelong union of intense seriousness, which it was very difficult for either of them to get out of. After the divorce laws in the 1960s, it was entered into it in the same way, but it was extraordinarily easy to get out of it. One party to the marriage wished to get out of it. Not merely could that party of the marriage get out of it, that party of the marriage could get, if necessary, the state to drag the other party out yeah. of the house yeah. and put him or her in prison if he wouldn't go. Mm. What's more, uh, to divide up the property and the children of the family in favor of the person who had initiated the breakup of the marriage. And this, th this, this interference of the state in private life is unprecedented in a free society, and yet it passed almost without knowledge. And the only 
fight that, that Christianity has made on the subject of marriage has been a futile Stalingrad on same-sex marriage. Right. 30 years too late. I mean, more, more actually, than 30 who years. Who cares? Yeah. It's not important. If a, if a few thousand homosexuals want to say that they've got married, it really if it makes them happy. I, it doesn't really trouble my conscience very much. The fact that millions of heterosexual marriages have broken up, leaving their children uh, devastated and continue to break up, and then now increasingly people never get married at all, is so many million times more important it can't even begin to be measured. And yet when that happened, what did you hear from the churches? Right. Almost nothing. Yeah. Well, m- many people have said this, and I'm one of them, that it was that the battle for no-fault divorce. That was, that the, was the moment. That meant to be... Pardon? That was the moment. That was the moment, and I don't know when that was here. I don't even know it was in the U.S., but... Uh, it, they were that, pretty much con, con, contemporaneous, and yeah. they, they happened pretty much at the same and, time. And that's, that's clearly when things were legally redefined to lead us to where we are now. On the same-sex marriage issue, uh, the biggest difficulty, I think, that most people who are against it, and I'm one of them, have, has less to do with uh, whether it's harmful for some people to marry each other than with what we knew and know will continue to happen regarding religious liberty of people who disagree yeah, with but, it. That's you, chilling. But, but, you, but that's, that's, that's already under threat. The, 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 the point that you have to grasp is that uh, same-sex marriage is not, a, is not one of the forces driving the destruction of, of, of either heterosexual marriage and Christianity, which are, as far as I'm concerned, are completely intertwined, intertwined anyway. It is one of the consequences of that collapse. I, agree, I agree with that. It's very interesting. The original proponents... Uh, of the of the sexual revolution were against marriage at all right and what's been quite interesting is how many of them have have actually done complete u-turns on this and are now rather fervently in favor of same-sex marriage yeah but of course same-sex marriage is quite different from uh, the the the, the sort of marriage which existed before the 1960s it's not really monogamous any more than an awful lot of heterosexual marriage is it's certainly not necessarily lifelong it's a different thing. It's, a, it's, it's not really conjugal. It's, it's a wholly different, much weaker relationship. And it's, easy, it's easier to get out of marriage these days than it is to get out of a car leasing agreement anyway. That's why I... Uh, you never lease cars. I would never lease a car, right. Uh, okay, that said, you, I agree with that. But I still say this issue of religious liberty and same-sex marriage is a big issue. Well, the issue of religious liberty is a big one. And, of course, same-sex marriage plays some part in it. But, actually, there are many other features. I can't really go into the legal position in the United States. But in this country, uh, under the last government, with the support of the Conservative Party, uh, there was passed uh, the Equality Act, uh, which of, I think, 2005, uh, which says that equality and diversity which is a polysyllabic way of saying political correctness, which is also polysyllabic, but is a different sort of polysyllable. Uh, it is equality and diversity are actually the fundamental rules by which fascist. we have to govern ourselves. Now, equality in, in these terms means, amongst other things, equality of religion, which means that Christianity is equal in the consideration which it can expect from a public body, from the health service, from, uh, from a school. It's equal to Islam, uh, to Jainism, to Buddhism, to Hinduism. What was the second one? Jainism. Do you know about the Jains? Do you know no. about the Jains? Oh, well, I, I, then, then I, I'm not going to go into it now, but they are, they are a, a, a fairly major Asian religion, which has some adherence in the United States. Um, it's equal to all of those. It's just it's it's it, instead of having the privileged position of being effectively the uh, the church on whose beliefs uh, Bible and prayer book the whole of the state and laws exist. It's just another body, but it, actually this, even this isn't true because of course everybody being afraid of Islam uh, and nobody being afraid of the Church of England, uh, that equality is somewhat theoretical when it comes to any disputes between the two. Right. Uh, so there is that element. So instead of, by, by being granted equality, Christianity has lost its primacy. And therefore you've had cases of people losing their jobs, uh, nurses, for instance, offering uh, Christian spiritual comfort to patients. Mm-hmm. And, they've been, and they've been specifically told that they can't do this because it's a breach of the equality and diversity rules. And what's more, their, 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 their labor unions, which uh, would normally support them in such cases, are also 
uh, completely wedded to equality and diversity, so they won't defend them. Are you familiar with Baroness Cox, Caroline Cox? Yes. She well, seems I to me the only voice uh, that I ever hear on this kind of an issue. I mean, well, it lots has of voices, but it, it's the, the, the fact is the battle is lost when you have all the major political parties in the country supporting this legislation. Where do you see it going? How far can it go? Downhill. But but how far can it go? I, I don't all know. All the way. Describe the bottom. I, I don't know. That, 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 I think we've weakened. There is, I describe in my book um, what Mogadishu uh, was like um, quite recently. Um, maybe it'd be like that. I don't know. I mean, once it goes, it goes. <laughs> right. But so, I think I, it, it's, it, what, what is, it seems to me to be quite certain is in, in this country, and I don't speak here about the United States because it's it, it's a very different society, but in this country, the Christian religion has been defeated. It's just in that stage where it hasn't quite realized it. Uh, you know the story of the Chinese executioner. There's a Chinese executioner of such skill and wonder that, that it, it was said that he could uh, behead his, uh, his, his victim uh, without the victim even noticing. And the victim is in this occasion has been condemned to death and he's told that the, the really special execution has been brought to execute him. And he's led into the room and the executioner says, will you please kneel down? And the prisoner does so and the executioner makes a number of elaborate passes and a sort of ballet. And the prisoner says, well, that's all very fancy. I don't see what all the fuss is about. And the executioner says, kindly nod, please. <laughs> I think British Christianity is in the state of the prisoner who is about to be asked to nod. Wow. It's all over. It's just we haven't realized it yet. Well, culturally speaking. Oh, culturally speaking, in all, in all ways speaking. Yeah. You go into people I know who go into, the, into the, what you call the public schools around here and we call the state schools. Uh, we'll tell you that uh, most children are completely unfamiliar, even with the stories of Easter and Christmas, let alone the rest of, 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 of the scriptures. It's just absolutely unfamiliar. They don't that's know dramatic. any of it at all. It is a blank. Uh, the, the, the main threat up till now has been an indifference. Indifference followed by ignorance. But there's now also an, an increasing secular militancy. And the other thing, of course, is the, 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 the absolutely un, uh, undoubted strength of Islam in, in Britain. You don't need to walk very far around Oxford now to find a mosque. And I don't think the Muslims are particularly worried about Richard Dawkins. They really, they really aren't. They don't care what he says. They're not, they're, they're not impressed. They're, 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 their beliefs are, un, are unaffected by this sort of thing. One of the things I admire about them is that they're completely single-minded about and, uh, and, and loyal to their faith. I think it's quite likely this could be an Islamic country in a century. In a century? Oh, yeah. I think that's optimistic. Very possible. I mean, a century. A century is a long time. Well, that's what I'm saying. I think, I, I think it wouldn't take that long going at the rate that things are going right now. I mean, if there's no, you know, there's still some semblance of, it's kind of like the cut flower idea, right? That, that there's still uh, certain things that seem to be carrying on, but it's, it's a cut flower. Well, Kierkegaard said uh, that the most effective revolutions were the ones which left all the buildings standing and all the symbols still in place, but changed everything even so. So the world was utterly revolutionized, but... In superficial outward appearance, it wasn't. And so people could continue to carry on as if and would not be too disturbed. And the mm. revolution would take hold bit by bit of their lives in, in, in such a way that they couldn't resist it. You say you never had any religious experiences, but when you say that you're a Christian, I suppose it means you believe Jesus rose from the dead. Absolutely. How bodily, how did you come to believe that? Because that's something that... Uh, is not so easy it, to... It seemed to me to be necessary. Necessary? Necessary. How so? Well, because if it isn't true, then, then nothing else is true, and then uh, and everything else falls out. The whole point about the creed as you go through it is it's almost like a, like a mathematical formula. These things have to be true. The more you think about it, these things have to be true for it to work. Therefore, I believe it. Yeah. I mean, have you read any of the arguments for the, for the resurrection? Any not particularly, no. I don't, I'm not. It, it's, I, I, don't, I, I genuinely take it on the basis of necessity. That's hilarious. That's very funny to me. I've Sorry. never heard it put that way. 
I mean, it's interesting. I get it's the it. the way I do it. I go, but it's, it's very it interesting. It works for me. I don't, yeah. don't necessarily no, recommend it to anybody um, else, but it works. Well, I guess that when you go through the apologetics arguments, it's another one of these things which, to my mind, it's an open and shut case. If you have to choose, you must choose that it happened. It doesn't mean that you can sort of prove it to everyone, but when you look at all the facts, it's very depressing for somebody who wants to say it couldn't have happened. No, but I mean, we all know that the, 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 the simplest point. Why did these people who knew it to be true, yeah. why did they subject themselves to being tortured and murdered yeah. and, generally, uh, and generally treated in the, in the most appalling way when, by insisting that it was true when they could just as well have said, right. no, it's not, and live happy, contented lives? Right. Why did they do that? Well, just as I would say being a Christian necessitates believing in the bodily resurrection, I would say being a Christian also necessitates ultimately being hopeful. Uh, you describe a tremendously pessimistic picture of things, but I'm guessing that there is some kind of hope. Maybe it's a very quiet, well, I think, private I think we, hope. We, we mistake the fact that we were fortunate enough to be brought up in and to have lived in societies which were fundamentally and formally Christian. Of course, they, they were in many ways not terribly Christian. Yeah. Uh, we mistake that for the strength of the Christian faith, which is a different thing. I'm not sure how that follows. Well, I don't think the Christian faith is necessarily stronger because, uh, because, because people live in societies which are formally... Correct, yeah. ...Christian. Yeah. That's not necessarily, not, not, not necessarily how it works. And you've been to North Korea? I have. You were, you were a, a correspondent? And yes. When were you there? Oh, it must be about six or seven years ago now. Can, can you t tell us that... My phone still doesn't work properly. A little bit, because you mentioned that upstairs, that... And you're not kidding. No. Okay, please ex unpack that too, because it really? sounds. Really, like I mean, a joke. I don't, they, they, you have to hand your telephone in when you arrive. Yeah. And then they give it back to you when you leave. Yeah. And when I tried to switch it on again back in China, it didn't work. I didn't. I, I had to get down to Hong Kong before it would work again. And ever since then, it's, it lights up at strange times at night. And it doesn't do a lot of things which normal mobile phones. Have you, phones have you do. thought of getting a new phone? Yeah, but it doesn't work. It's 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 embedded somewhere in its in its electronic nature. I'd, I'd have to change the number to get rid of it. And I can't be bothered. If the North Korean intelligence service is listening in on my private line, and you don't want to I change the care. number, you don't care, no. right? Because what, maybe what are they going to do with the information? You'll convert them. You'll what do I do them. with the information? What are they going to do? Right. If they're listening in, I think they're fascinated. Um, <laughs> I think they probably think, "How on earth can we get our stuff out of this phone? Why can't we get right, to come right. back to Pyongyang so, so we can deprogram it?" So it's too late now. So you're a Christian, but I still want to ask you. So do you, do you have a sense of hope? Uh, or what, what is your sense of hope? I know you've got to have some kind of a sense of hope. Maybe it's just an eternal kind of hope. It's an eternal hope, yeah. But I look, I, there is this great... People always say, why are you so gloomy? I'm not gloomy at all. I have an incredibly fortunate life. I, I, here we are at the, at, at the end of a declining civilization, but it's still, this is still one of the most beautiful cities on the planet. Uh, this is still it remains, despite all the attempts to, to, to mess it up, one of the... the most civilized countries in which to live. I, my worry is that I'm not going to hand on and damage the heritage which was given to me. Mm. Uh, the, and worse, that, that having realized that this was happening, that I've not been able to do anything about it. Uh, I've got no complaints about myself. Uh, it's, it's, it's being able to see, and having seen enough of the present is a good guide sometimes to the future. And I have seen a lot of the present. I've visited 60 different countries. Uh, I've seen a lot of things, not all of them nice. And so I, I know, for instance, that catastrophes can and do happen. And that one of the most worrying things about them is that people live through them and survive them. I'm worried. Yeah. But I'm worried not principally for myself. Uh, say, I, I, I live, I, I live an, an enviable life. Which, which but if you, feel, but if you but feel things are inevitably... That's not, that's not the point. If you feel things are inevitably headed downhill... Um, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Is it uh, reaching a few people? What? what? I, mean, I, I, the, I, the, I have, as I say, a very, a very agreeable life. I don't but what I'm saying is, what, why do you do what you do? You're arguing against well, these, these days, things I just at the think same it's, time. You're no, saying the, the, that it's the, inevitable I, that, that nothing will change. I, I, I did used to think that I might make some difference. But I made some attempts to intervene you know, using what influence I thought I might have through my national newspaper column and broadcasting to try and influence things, and completely failed. 
Uh, and I decided as a job that to stop making myself unhappy by, by, by doing this and to appoint myself the obituarist of Britain. Uh, I'm writing the obituary of the country in the hope that people in future will read it and realize that a, a happy, prosperous, civilized country can turn itself into hell in a matter of decades, and this is how it's done. Don't do it yourselves. Don't you just want to dance? <laughs> I, um, this is an evangelical church we're in here. It's, yes, it is. I... Um, well, we have to, we have to, we're out of time, but I, I guess I want to ask you that don't you think what you write uh, gives comfort and encouragement to some people, and isn't that worth something? I, Perhaps, I, maybe yeah, you're I, discounting I, that, that. People do sometimes write very kindly to me and say that this is so, and I'm, uh, and I'm pleased, yes. But it's not the, it's, it, the comfort that I can't, I can't say everything's going to be all right. No. But I, I think the way these things work... I think work, that, you know, the, the, it's the, 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 the psychologists and the soppy people are always telling us to come to terms with things, which is a, an expression I've come to loathe. Yeah. But on the other you hand... You haven't yet come to terms with it. On the other hand, no. On the other hand, there is a sort of uh, satisfaction in realizing how bad it is. Uh-huh. If you, know, if you know how bad it is, I, I, have, I, I have never understood why people are so down on pessimists. Pessimism, <laughs> pessimism has been an enormous stay and comfort to me throughout my life. I am almost never disappointed. I'm is it a, pessimism I'm, or is it realism? I am, occasionally, I am occasionally pleasantly surprised, and I'm usually prepared for, for disasters in such a way that they don't affect me too badly. I recommend pessimism. It is the thing, but that, do you get to, the a thing point... to make you happy above almost any material or, or, yeah. or, or non-spiritual thing I can think of. Pessimism is great. But do adopt you get, but do you adopt it. But do, do you get to a point where you become so comfortable with pessimism that you actually don't want things to be better? Undoubtedly. And, and we'll is, leave it this there. Is, this is a fault. I'll, we'll leave it there. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest has been the great Mr. Peter Hitchens. Thank you. Thank you.